Damien Serrells is a translator from German, Norwegian, French and Dutch and a writer in English. He has translated about 60 books including 10 by this year's Nobel Prize winner Jan Fosser and won numerous translation awards uh, including Guggenheim and Kalman Center fellowships the biggest German to English translation prize in America for Uwe uh, Janssen's uh, four volume anniversaries and the biggest such prize in England twice for books by Hans Kelsen and uh, Sasa Stanisic His own writing includes poetry, fiction, reviews and uh, two non-fiction books, The Inkblots, A History of the Rorschach Test and a biography of its creator Hermann Rorschach and the upcoming The Philosophy of Translation which is getting released in the year 2024. In this episode he spoke about his journey of translation, loss and gain in translation, Jan Fossa, Thomas Mann and his upcoming book on translation the philosophy of uh, translation welcome to our podcast uh, damian uh, could you tell us about the beginnings of your journey as a reader sure so i was in graduate school studying english which did not involve translation but on the side i had learned German in college and I learned it in a, I'd always wanted to know another language so I had taken different languages in school at different points I took Latin in middle school for a, a first year requirement in college I took Russian for a year which I liked but I didn't end up pursuing it but the one that stuck was German because I was a philosophy major in college so I was writing about German philosophy and also i had discovered the poet rilke and so i started being interested in german i started learning german really my last year in college but there was enough that i wanted to read and keep doing that i kept going with german and tried to read things in german whether or not they'd been translated because i wanted to read them in german and then that was when i started thinking oh translating that seems fun i ended up thinking that really there are two kinds of creativity for writers there's the sort of i have a unique inner voice and a message inside myself and my goal is to express it to the world is one kind of mode and the other is what i think of as a translator's imagination which is what is creativity while well, you take stuff in and then you give it back out into the world in your own form so it's not only translators who have that mode there's some writers who i think of in that way that they're not trying to express themselves but they're trying to share their perceptions of the world and i think of that as the translator's mode also because of course a translator's reading something and then giving it back in a different form i think i just have that type of mind or creativity the number 2 and so i enjoyed as a as starter writing like you don't have to face a blank page because you've already read it and you don't have to face a full page that you've written with your own stuff and ask yourself wow is this total garbage 
because it isn't because you've read it and it's good already. So you just can get the existential questions out of the way and work on making it sound better. So I liked it. And that was in a way my kind of entree or giving myself permission to be a writer. I've since, of course, written my own stuff, but I wasn't all that much of a creative writer before I started translating. I had tried like a sonnet here or there, but it was the translating that kind of let me feel what the writing process was like. Your education was in, uh, formal education was into philosophy to begin with. Was there any early influences for informative years to, to come towards languages and philosophy and all? I was always a big reader. That's the main thing. That's what makes people writers. In high school, I was a math and physics person. I was doing like math Olympiads. I wasn't a serious prodigy, but I was like borderline good at it, but not some sort of super genius at it. But I went to college to be a physics major. And then the first semester, I took the punishing intro advanced physics course at eight in the morning. I don't know why they do that. And at the same time was taking a kind of distribution requirement, which was a philosophy course. And I, I just switched. I liked the philosophy one better than, I don't know if that was all because of how it was taught or what time they scheduled it at. But anyway, yeah, so I, I switched into that in college. So all the three books that you wrote, uh, you have done it after you got into translation, full fridge. More or less. I'm not sure which three books you mean because they're different ways of counting. So I wrote in grad school. Yeah, but they all were after. I didn't, I wasn't writing stories or anything in high school or college or anything. It was all after that. Yeah. One is uh, this uh, Think Blots. Other one is a short story compilation and one on the travel uh, literature, right? Yes, I wrote a very short in grad school that the graduate school had a prize for students writing a book. And I almost didn't submit it because it's extremely short what I wrote. The word count is probably about 7,000 words, which is 20th the size of a normal book or maybe a 10th the size of a small book. And I was like, this isn't a book, but it was a book. So I submitted it. It actually won that prize and it got published as a little chat book. So that was the first thing. And then this book of short stories, what we were doing and where we were going was the second. The Rorschach book was normal kind of biography and history. So it wasn't some sort of creative nonfiction amalgam thing. It was like literally going and doing research in the archives and writing a biography. I picked up a couple of books for you to talk about, the ones you translated. Uh, the first one is On Reading by Proust. Interestingly, it is Proust translating. Yeah, it's a hard book to describe, but I actually think it's really great. It's out of print now, and I've been trying to get it back into print. So Proust was a translator. He translated into French two books by John Ruskin, the English writer. And so one way to frame this is that was very important 
important for Proust's development. Ruskin has a very lush style, and Proust really learned a lot about how to construct his French sentences from the process of translating Ruskin. And But the other thing is, he went about it in this kind of crazy way. Typically, I don't know if your listeners have read Proust before, but he has this mind where he starts with something that's true, like he's correct, it's true, but then draws conclusions from it until it goes into this crazy territory. So he starts by saying that you can't really judge a work of art from only one, you have to look at at least two. And his example is if you look at a Rembrandt portrait of someone, you don't know if it's the sitter, the person being portrayed, that's making the painting look like that, or what is the sort of Rembrandt aspect of it, right? But if you look at 10 Rembrandt portraits, then you can see what makes Rembrandt. And this is obviously true, right? But then he says, here I am translating the first John Ruskin book to be translated into French. What can I do for my readers? And his answer was that he himself had read everything by Ruskin, and had this incredible memory and said he knew Ruskin's 600-page autobiography by heart and was all in his head. So every time the book he was translating made him think of some other bit of Ruskin from a different book, he translated that other bit and put it in a footnote. And so what he said is that you, the French reader, now have a fake memory of all of Ruskin's other stuff. There's a phrase that is always mistranslated that he uses to describe this. He says this like galaxy of footnotes is a memoir improvisé, like improvised. So it's always translated as improvised memory. But that's wrong. It's not improvised. It's not a jazz solo. It's not spontaneous. What it is is cobbled together as this lesser substitute for a real memory. In an in a earlier version of the sentence, he called it memoir factice, which means a fake memory, right? So what he's saying is, ideally, you would know all of Ruskin and would have other passages like coming up from the depths of your own mind. But since you aren't able to do that, here's a makeshift memory. That's what improvise really means. It's a substitute memory consisting of all these footnotes of all the other Ruskin passages that he thought of. So first of all, that's crazy and funny and weird. Then in the second book of Ruskin's he translated, Proust translated, he wrote a very long preface called On Reading that really is the birthplace of remembrance of things past. He's describing Cambrai and his family and sneaking away at age 10 to go up to his attic and read this book he's reading. And he really is giving a very novelistic description of his childhood reading experience that really could come straight out of Remembrance of Things Past. And so that's the other way um, that this was important to him. And so what I wanted to do, which had never been done, was print the whole Ruskin thing, the whole Ruskin text, which is about reading, that's what makes this even more meta, print the whole Ruskin text and all the footnotes that Proust added, as well as the preface essay, 
because you could then see a lot of the footnotes are very Proustian there about Lund doctors in Paris and like all this stuff that doesn't really have anything to do with Ruskin, but it's Proust's mind creating this like makeshift sort of universe, which is what he always does. Um, and so the book on reading, the publisher said no to the entire Ruskin text. So it's most of the Ruskin text with like most of the footnotes, but you do get to see the translating process and annotating process in action. And you get this great essay called On Reading. So that's what that book is. Now, all these books that you translated, it is all out of your choice. I think it's pretty typical for creative careers that you start off as unknown. And so your only option is this labor of love that you convince someone to do and you get paid no money for it. But then eventually, once you have a track record, then publishers will start to come to you and uh, or agents and say, can you do a sample of this book because we want to sell it in English? And then when they do sell it in English, I'm the natural person to translate it or something like that. At the same time, I also have more cachet so that when I do bring a project to a publisher, I'm able to do that. So it's it. I think that's all pretty typical. So it went from everything being stuff that I was practically volunteering to do to now there's a combination and some projects come to me, some I bring to publishers and even the ones that come to me, I can say yes or no. And the ones I say yes to are the ones that are what I want to be doing. Um, I'm a bit, especially from the German side, I used to be primarily a German translator before Fossa, this Norwegian writer. And now it's strange after all these years of translating German, it's, oh, you're a Fossa's translator from Norwegians. Yes. Okay. But yeah, I'm a bit typecast in the German translation zone doing early 20th century modernist classics like Thomas Mann, Hermann Hesse, Dublin, Robert Walser, people like that, and Rilke. So there was one moment when I was like, God, I'm doing all these German men from the 30s. I'm doing Thomas Mann, Hermann Hesse, and Bambi, which was an Austrian novel from the 20s. And at that point, I made a concerted effort to find some actually living, young women writers, not all these Thomas Mann, Hermann Hesse types. And so there was this sort of cluster of three of those that I did. So there's a certain way that I can push things in a certain direction combined with whatever comes to me from publishers. Now, one of my favorite questions, uh, how closely does the art of translation mimic writing, creative writing? I'm curious what everyone else says. I'm sure everyone else says it's pretty close. And so do I. I wrote a book called The Philosophy of Translation that's going to be out next year. So the starting point in the book is that whatever you think translation is, it's an act of reading that's connected to an act of writing. In other words, you're reading one thing and you're writing another thing that's connected to it. Whatever you think translation is, that's the minimal definition that will apply to any idea of translation. 
From there, what I say is that I think the writing part is pretty much the same as every other kind of writing. If I'm writing a book that's a translation of another book, there's quite heavy constraints, like it has to be the same book. But every time you're writing, there's constraints. There's constraints of genre. There's constraints of what the words mean. The language exists before you come along. There are all sorts of constraints. And writing a book that's a translation of another book has more constraints, but it's basically the same. I And what makes translation different, the sort of key ingredient of the translation process is the reading of the other book. You're reading it in a different way. You're not just reading the book, but you're looking at how the book uses its language because your job as a writer is to do the same thing, but from the baseline of a different language. So a metaphor I use in the philosophy of translation book is arcing off of a baseline. If you imagine a, a firework shooting up into the sky or a fountain that isn't aiming at anything, it just shoots up and then it scatters into droplets and falls back down. So that arc is what the translator wants to recreate, except the ground is totally different. The ground is a totally different language. You can't do the same thing, but starting from the completely different starting point, you want to make it arc the same way. That's my metaphor for it. So you have to be reading for how the original text is using its language in a way that when you're not reading like a translator, you can just read it and feel it and enjoy it or not enjoy it or whatever. How different is this book uh, from, you know, let us say a book on academic, uh, academically written on translation? The way that I place it generically in terms of genre in the world of books about translation is there was a book from the 70s by a man named George Steiner called After Babel. There was this very majestic Olympian kind of pronouncement on all of human culture and interaction being like translation. And nobody writes like that anymore and nobody wants to write like that anymore pronouncing from the mountaintop on like all of everything but i did want to do what i thought of as another primary source not secondary source i'm not doing a survey of a bunch of people's different ideas of translation i'm like laying out what i think mine is and i'm daring to call it the philosophy of translation not philosophies or Sorry, everyone, this is just my philosophy of translation, but just calling it the philosophy and putting it out there. There have been in English a bunch of what I think of as introduction to the topic books, where maybe you've never thought about translation before, but actually it has all these interesting issues and it's a really creative process and all this kind of stuff. So Mark Palazzotti, Edith Grossman, David Bellos, they've written several of those. So I didn't feel the need to write another one of those and start from scratch and kind of convince people that the topic is interesting. I'm just taking for granted that the topic is interesting and laying out how I think it works. I was very anxious about calling it the philosophy of translation and am I allowed to do that and will it sound just arrogant and imperialist and all this stuff. But I ended up deciding that that's what I, that's what I mean. Every 
philosophy book that's ever been called the philosophy of law or nature or whatever. From the outside, it's just another a philosophy that people disagree with. But from the inside, they meant it. They were putting it out there. They were generously offering it to the public sphere to say, maybe you'll agree, maybe you'll disagree, but I think this is the philosophy of nature. And that's what I'm doing. We'll see if everyone hates me for it, but there it is. When is it likely to come out? September, September of 2024. It's in the production, copy editing, that kind of thing now. Uh, may I know who is publishing it? Yale University Press in the U.S. What are your views about uh, loss in translation? Yeah, there's the famous line, poetry is what's lost in translation. And it just seems like a pessimistic way to look at it, because what what you're saying is that the poetry is the relationship between the language and whatever else there is, the idea or the feeling behind the language or however you want to do that. So yeah, when all the language is different, you are not going to have any of that relationship, but you're going to have your new relationship of the new language to everything else. Everything that gets lost gets gained again in the new text, except it's by a different author. So obviously... Rilke is really good at coming up with German words, and we translators of Rilke into English are not at that level. So in that sense, it's unlikely that, on the other hand, we have Rilke's help like in order to put it together. So, but not, but it's not the translation process that loses anything. You know what I mean? It's just a different, it's just a, it's just a text with a different relationship to these same kind of ideas. Poetry is what gets gained in translation too. It's, and there are certainly ways to look at translation that emphasize what it adds. There's no better thing you can do in an English class than hand out 10 different translations of the same Rilke poem. That is the best exercise there is to get people to think about what makes the poetry, to practice their ability to judge better and worse, to teach them what better or worse means in a context where there's no right answer, like in a math problem. A lot of time beginning students who come into a humanities course think the teacher has some secret checklist in their mind because how else can they grade my opinion? on this novel. But if you show them five translations, they can just see that some are better than the others, even if there's no right answer. So that when the time comes to look at their paper, they can understand that it might be better or worse, even if there's no right answer. That's gained in translation. You get to have people really think about how, if you're doing translations into English, how the English language works and the kind of power that writerly decisions have over the final text and stuff like that, that is totally gained in translation. If you want, you can focus on, wow, we'll never read Rilke in the original, or even if German, you'll never read Tolstoy in the original, or even if German and Russian, you'll never read whatever. No one reads everything in the original. But that just means that 
translation is how you read world literature. And that's a big game. Now, uh, the Inkblots, uh, your book uh, was translated into more than 10 languages. Some of the languages, probably you yourself could have translated it to. How was the interaction with uh, translators? The first thing I'd say is that's not true. I don't translate into other languages because I don't write in those languages. Even German, which is the one I know best, I couldn't sit down and write a book in German. I couldn't sit down and write a, a letter in German that sounds right. I read German and I write in English. So I certainly couldn't have done it. I could, in theory, have reviewed the German translation more closely than the Hungarian translation or whatever. But but I thought that would be a waste of time because the way translation works is that the translator is writing the book and they are a better judge of German writing than I am because they're a writer in German and I have to trust them. And if it's good, then it's good. And if it's bad, then I'm not going to be able to save it and I'm just wasting my time and getting depressed. I really felt that there was no reason for me to micromanage them to whatever extent I could, which isn't even that big an extent because I don't write in German. Perfectly open to questions that any translators ever sent me. What did you mean by this? Or, oh, this seems like a mistake. Are you sure? And that it might, in fact, have been a mistake. Or, by the way, you forgot this footnote or whatever. The translators are very close readers. And so they catch all sorts of things. And sure, there were some places where they would ask me, sorry, what did you mean in this sentence? I can't quite understand. And I would explain it and they'd say, okay, thank you. And then they would decide how to write that in whatever their language is. It was very friendly, but it wasn't, I wasn't hovering over them, monitoring them because I've had that experience as a translator and it's no fun and it doesn't make the book any better. Yon Fossa, when did you read Fossa first and uh, what was your experience as a reader? It was over 20 years ago now, and I did not, in fact, know any Norwegian at all. The reason I read him is that an American publisher had heard about him. And what they do, if they're, if it's a book in Spanish, there might be someone in the office who reads Spanish. If it's a book in Norwegian, it's very unlikely that there's someone in the office who reads Norwegian. So they, they basically get a book report. If they're Roger Strauss or for our Strauss Giroux, you, they call up their friend Susan Sontag and say, hey, Susan, should we translate this book, Name of the Rose? Or they just get a junior person like a grad student or a beginning translator or something and pay them a hundred bucks to basically do a book report. That's what someone did. And the book, which is Melancholy, had been translated from Norwegian into German. So not only was there no one in the office that knew Norwegian, but they didn't know any grad students or beginning translators they trusted or whatever to, to read it directly in Norwegian, but they had me read the German translation and do my report. Fossa's German translator is very good and has been working with him for decades. I read the book and wrote the report that, first of all, describes the plot and then said what I thought. And what I thought is, 
total genius. You absolutely must do it. This book is amazing. And the publisher said, thank you very much for your report. Here's your hundred bucks. And as it turns out, they didn't do it, which is how it goes. They have other projects that they're considering and maybe they didn't like how I described it, even though I said that it worked well, like maybe it didn't sound like it was going to work well for them or whatever. So that's normal. But in this case, I said, I really believe in this book. Like, can I take the project somewhere else since you're not doing it anyway? Um, I don't know if I needed to ask them. It's not like they owned it, but I just felt like that was the right thing to do. And they were like, yeah, sure, fine. We don't care. So, um, I found the book, an American publisher using a sample that I translated directly from the German, which obviously didn't end up. I found a co-translator who I knew, a native Norwegian speaker who was interested in breaking into translation, and we co-translated the book. And what that means is that she did a first draft directly Norwegian to English. And so I sat there with the English the Norwegian, which I knew what it said because I had the English. And when I didn't see how they were going together or which word meant which or whatever, I had the German to triangulate. And Norwegian is a language that's pretty similar to German in a lot of ways, the grammar, a lot of the vocabulary. So it wasn't like I was using Arabic or something. It was a pretty direct way to learn what all the Norwegian words meant and stuff. And that was my role. I would revise the English on that basis and send it back to Greta, my co-translator, for this other round. And we did round after round. I was worried at the beginning, am I just going to be an editor, like touching up a couple things? But actually, because so much of Foss's writing is about the rhythm and getting these sort of internal rules for each book and stuff like that, there ended up being dozens and dozens of changes every page, some getting them closer to the Norwegian, some getting them farther, then talking to her about how the Norwegian's working and doing it again and stuff like that. So I do think that it's fair to say it was a co-translation, not just a dude with more prestige piggybacking on the actual translator and then calling her a native informant or something, which is what I really did not want to do. I think it was a, a fair co-translation process. And then after that, she decided not to do more FASA and I decided to keep doing more FASA. And I translated since then without a co-translator. That's how I learned the language. And again, I don't speak it. I couldn't interpret for the UN. I couldn't have a dinner table conversation where I'm interpreting back and forth. And I'm sure there are some authors that it would not be appropriate for me to translate if there's subtle social cues in the language choices. And The new book that has come out, the latest one, it's uh, Shining from Yon Fossa. So you translated it. Please, sir. Uh, Take us through the book and uh, please talk about, uh, take one example from, I meant uh, the first sentence. Please take an example from the book and how you translated it. The book before A Shining is called Septology. And that is generally seen as his magnum opus among his novels. 
Fassa is also a world famous playwright, but in English, the plays never really took off. And in terms of him being a novelist, this was clearly his big book. Uh, it's called Septology because it's in seven parts, but it's all sort of one book. And in fact, it was published as three books, which is very confusing. All the numbers in Fossa are confusing. And so then after that, he wrote this incredibly short book called The Shining. So after the years-long buildup with Septology, there was this very slim book, which worked out well because he won the Nobel Prize this year. And for anyone who was wrongly scared off from Septology because, oh my God, it's so long. It's actually not a difficult book, but anyone who was scared off, there's this really short one. So the story is that a man at loose ends doesn't know what to do with his life, so just goes for a drive. Whenever he gets to a choice, he turns right, and then the next one he turns left, and the next one he turns right, so he's not choosing what to do. He's just following this rule and seeing where it takes him. And where it takes him is down this road in, into a forest where his car gets stuck. And so there he is. He can't go anywhere. He's all by himself. He hasn't passed any houses recently. It's night is falling. Snow is starting. It's Norway. What's he going to do? And after thinking about it for a while, there's this sort of footpath that leads into the forest. And he's decides path must lead somewhere and nothing's going to happen if I stay here. So I might as well just go into this path. And one of the things I love about the book, I think this is his playwriting side, is that he's really great at capturing the way people shift their thoughts. People don't think analytically or logically. So after all this time that he's wondering what to do and deciding to go into the forest, the minute he walks into the forest, he says to himself, I'm so stupid. What was I thinking? This is the dumbest thing you could ever do. Walk alone into a forest and get lost when you're cold and it's night. What is my problem? So after all this time convincing himself, he immediately realizes, wait, bad idea. What's wrong with me? Anyway, so in the forest, it's a bit more of a, less realistic book from that point on, if you want to put it that way. And he sees these shining shapes start to appear. And the thing that's great about the book is that he really commits to the bit, as we say, in America. If you were alone in a forest and you suddenly saw these glowing white human-shaped presences floating in front of you, you wouldn't believe your eyes. You'd be like, what is this? Am I seeing things? Like, this isn't possible. But then what? You say that to yourself, and there they are. Like, what would you do? And so that's what the book really captures. So it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like a Marvel movie where everyone flying around is just normal, and there are no rules, and like, nothing matters. It, and it doesn't feel I don't know. It, it's somehow you really get the emotional reality of what this would be like, even though some would say it's impossible. Anyway, so that's that's the shining of the title. 
And so the first sentence, there were a couple different reviews that, that picked out the first couple sentences and said, this is a, this shows how great Fossa is at really being on this very human, normal, everyday reality. One reviewer said, it sets up the, let me read, let me read first page. So this is the beginning of a shining. I was taking a drive. It was nice. Felt good to be moving. I didn't know where I was going. I was just driving. Boredom had taken hold of me. Usually I was never bored, but now I had fallen prey to it. I couldn't think of anything I wanted to do, so I just did something. I got in my car and drove. And when I got somewhere I could turn right or left, I turned right. And at the next place I could turn right or left, I turned left, and so on. I kept driving like that. Eventually, I'd driven a long way up a forest road where the ruts gradually got so deep that I felt like the car was getting stuck. I just kept driving until the car got totally stuck. I tried to reverse, but I couldn't, so I stopped the car, turned the engine off. I was sitting in the car. Yes, now I'm here, I thought. Now I'm sitting here, and I felt empty, as if the boredom had turned into emptiness or maybe into a kind of anxiety because I felt something like fear as I sat there empty, looking straight ahead, as if into a void, into nothingness. What am I talking about, I thought. There's the forest in front of me. It's just a forest, I thought. All right, then, this sudden urge to drive off somewhere had brought me to a forest. And there was another way of talking, according to which something or another led, whatever that might mean, to something else. Yes, something else. I peered into the forest in front of me. Forest. Yes, trees right next to one another, pines, pine trees, and between the trees was brown soil that looked like it was mostly dry. I felt empty, and then this anxiety. What was I scared of? So that's the beginning, and we can already see him getting further and further into this uncertain world. Um, and so the first three sentences are very short and simple. I was taking a drive. It was nice. It felt good to be moving. And so as I was starting to say, this, this critic said, already we're getting a kind of clue of if he's enjoying this drive, what's he running away from? What has gone wrong with this guy's life? And I think it's a good example of what the translator does and doesn't do. Often asked, oh, is it hard to translate a book where you get the information so much later or whatever? And the answer is no, because that's the writer's decision. If the writer doesn't give you a piece of information till page 200, there's no decision for the translator to make. You're not going to move the scene to page 50 because you feel like it. You're just following the construction of the book. So starting with saying this is just the author's decision and the translator just follows it. What I was doing, though, was deciding how to say it. In Norwegian, the first sentence is four words long, really three, because the last two go together. I, and then 
in Norwegian, there's only one past tense. So drove or was driving is the same word in Norwegian. And so it's not that drove is a more literal translation. They're both literal translations because that's the one word there is. I drove or was driving. And then avgarda, which kind of just means forth, onwards. It means not going anywhere specific, not running an errand, not like trying to get to someplace, but just driving. And yeah, you could translate it as, I drove off, just like I started somewhere. But how do you translate that? Because we don't have that adverb that works that way. The first, I tried different things and I ended up with, I was just driving along because I felt that the important thing to get was the sort of purposelessness and not the departure point. But you could have translated it, I drove off. And that would be a much more sort of visual or screenplay-ish beginning of, I was at a certain point and then I left it. But instead, I thought it was in the process. I found myself driving like Dante finds himself in a dark wood. So then the next two, so I, I at first ended up with, I was just driving along. And it was the editor who said, oh, that's not working for me. That seems like it's in the middle of something, like driving along what? And my first reaction was, oh, you're wrong. It's perfect as it is. But then I got over it and thought about it. And I was like, how else could we do it? And I tried different things in, in my mind and in my word file. And so I changed it from I was just driving along to I was taking a drive. In English, you always want to get as much as you can into the verbs. And, and this seemed in a way better. It was like even more simple than just driving along. Taking a drive kind of got the just in there already by it being casual and whatever. And so the next two sentences are both three-word sentences in Norwegian. And so what they literally mean was, it did good, meaning it did me good. But again, you have to decide, do I subjectively, psychologically feel good, or is it objectively helpful and beneficial? I felt good about it, and it was beneficial to me, are both equally good translations. And then it felt good. And then the third sentence is to move did good. It did good, to move did good. And to move is one word, it's the infinitive. Moving did good. There's that repetition, but repetition is more normal in Norwegian and sticks out in English. So you have to decide, do you think that this repetition is something that FOSA is calling attention to, or is that just how the language works? Do you, would repetition in English stand out the right amount, or would it stand out too much? Where do you want to go on this subjective, objective thing of like how it feels versus how it is? How simple can you make it since it did good is like the three simplest words you could possibly use. So again, the way I ended up with was, I was taking a drive. It was nice. It felt good to be moving. 
And so there are hundreds of choices in there. The variation, whether it was or whether it felt, and varying the sentence length because it might sound a little bit too thudding to have three super short sentences right at the beginning. That's the translator's role. So I'm not deciding to how to start the book in the sense of what's happening, but I'm deciding how to start the book in terms of setting the tone and how it's going to feel to the reader and things like sentence length, using a word like nice that means almost nothing, deciding whether to say it was or it felt, like all those, deciding whether to say was driving or drove. All those decisions are what the translator's doing. When I was reading the book, Shining, I'm halfway through. I have not finished it as yet. I think I guess around 40 pages I read. Now, like you said, there is a lot of repetition, right? Every three sentences or four sentences. Within a paragraph, there are two or three repetitions. Very, very subtle variations, which means slightly, there is a slight difference in the way it is expressed. Was it difficult for you to translate in the sense that you had to take a lot of time translating this? There is typically repetition in the books. It does work differently. There's different forms it takes. So A Shining is actually all one paragraph, but with very short sentences. Septology is broken up into paragraphs, but there are no full stops at the ends of any of the sentences. So sometimes reviewers say it's all one sentence. It's not actually true. There's dialogue separated by paragraphs. There's just no period at the end of the paragraph. And there are sentences that are separated by commas or and. So it's not like some gigantic 700-page puzzle. And there's repetition in other books that work differently in the different books. By this point, this is the ninth or tenth book of his I've translated, and I've gotten the hang of it. And so it's not in a way, I don't know. I, I remember hearing this anecdote that some artist told about so-and-so had been a painter for 50 years and was painting this landscape. And someone came up to him and said, how long does it take you to paint this? And he said, an hour or 50 years, depending on how you look at it. And now I think... It's relatively straightforward for me to translate this, but that's because I've done it before. And also the fact that I don't think about it doesn't mean it's not a skill. So it, it's not that it's a simple thing to do, but it's that's something I know how to do, so I do it. That's probably the best way I, I can think of to answer it. Jon Fosser getting the Nobel Prize. Uh, what's your reaction? As I say, it's it's very affirming of my own judgments. And I'm going to get to go to Stockholm and go to the Nobel banquet this week. And I've rented tailcoats and everything. It's exciting. I think it helps my reputation and career, although I'm not sure exactly what that means. Of course, Foss is now going to sell a lot more books, which 
also means selling septology into dozens more languages, and that has nothing to do with me. There'll probably be a boost in sales, at least for a year. But so in practical terms, I don't think it's totally going to change my life or anything. I I think it's going to change his. He's never going to get out from under all the emails ever again. But, But in a more... Uh, in a less kind of business-like practical sense. Yeah, it's great. It feels good. And it's exciting that this writer that I think is so wonderful got this big prize. And it also is true that in the publishing world, English makes a difference. So your average book in published in, I don't know, German, might get sold and translated into five or six languages. But when it gets its big review in The New Yorker or The Guardian, that's when it can get translated into 20 or 30 languages. And German publishers know this. And like everyone knows this, that's just how the industry is set up, which is too bad, but that's how it is. The English translation and sort of reception of a book is the real gateway to worldwide reception. It's probably true in some sense that I made more of a difference than his translators into other languages in terms of building his reputation up to the point where he gets the Nobel Prize. There's no way to really know that or quantify it or anything. In some like modest small way, I feel like proud of this as a victory that I helped with. But of course, it's him and not me. I'm not crazy. I'm not taking credit for it or anything. Yeah, it's exciting. It's great. Now, Thomas Mann's new selected stories, uh, there is a foreword, I believe. I always uh, love reading forewords of translators. Um, There are a lot of details about uh, his life. Thomas Mann. And uh, the way he approaches writing and especially related to these stories, uh, there was some kind of a commentary on this. Before taking up the translation, how well will you try to get to know about the writer and his earlier works? Yes, this is an interesting compliment to the FASA case because for FASA, I'm reading this thing that no one's read in English before. And I am deciding, should it be presented into English and how should it be presented? Mon, of course, is incredibly canonical and everyone knows about him. The thing about Mon is that, especially in America, I don't know how it is in India, he's very intimidating. He is this super serious, high culture, intellectual European Mount Olympus. Death in Venice, Magic Mountain, Dr. Faustus. Look at those titles. And the one anecdote I knew about him when I was younger was like every day he would get up and write one page a day. Just like clockwork. And that's like a novel a year or a big novel every two years. And then he gets a Nobel Prize. Super intimidating for any normal person. But luckily, I had taken a course in college where 
we read Mon's last novel called Confessions of Felix Krull, Confidence Man. And that book is hilarious. It's genuinely funny. It's about a con man. So the voice is very patter and like trying to tell you all this stuff and confuse you and whatever. And I had read Buddenbrooks, which is totally heartbreaking, genius, realist novel that Mon finished somehow when he was 25 years old. I read this short story, which in earlier translations had been called Disorder and Early Sorrow. But once my German was up to it, I read it in German. And I just thought this is truly one of the greatest short stories of all time. If you have a canon of The Dead by James Joyce or Alice Munro or Mavis Gallant or Chekhov, this is up there. It's heartbreaking. It's laugh out loud hilarious. It's so wise. It's so beautiful. And so I wanted to convey that because the earlier translation, which is from the 1930s, uh, just didn't. It was much dustier and like it didn't have the spark that the original had. Um, because of a kind of long and boring complicated reason, that story was not in the public domain, which means stories before 1923 can be published and translated by anyone. They're not owned anymore. So that's why you can do Sense and Sensibility and Vampires, or that's why you can remake a Jane Austen novel, however you want, or whatever. But this story was published in 1925, so it wasn't in the public domain, and there was no way for me to retranslate it. So I had to wait 20 years, and then finally last year, it's in public domain. At last, I could get this story to, to readers. And the publisher, so I pitched it to a publisher that by this point I had worked with, and they said, oh, yeah, it's great, but that's just one story. It's 40 pages long. You need a book. So you need to do a selection. Of course, you need to include Death in Venice because you can't publish Thomas Mann's stories without Death in Venice. And so it was because of that kind of external prompt that I started thinking, okay, if I'm trying to present this kind of warm, funny, humane, hilarious, empathetic Thomas Mann of this story, how el what else do I add or include in order to make this presentation? I'm the one who decided to call it New Selected Stories because I was trying to, you know, convey this is not the Thomas Mann selected stories you've read before. This is a new version. The cover designers did a great job of this very colorful, fragmented kind of contemporary looking thing. There, the editor told me kind of the assignment he gave to the designers is not your grandfather's Thomas Mann. And that's what the cover really does convey, as well as the selection. I just uh, love the cover. It's uh, really beautiful. Yeah, it's it's a very modern font and bright colors and and stuff like that. So the entire sort of selection process of assembling the book you know, turned into a kind of continuation of the translation process of 
how can I present this Thomas Mann that English readers haven't had access to before? So even though he's the absolute opposite of a debut author that no one's heard of, at the same time, the reason to do the book was because I felt like he had been presented in a slanted or limited way in English before, and there was a real truth and reality about his writing that English language readers hadn't seen yet. And so that was the idea that that sort of ended up shaping kind of everything about the book. So what does uh, your uh, new translation bring to the table? Uh, yeah, not every translation of Death in Venice. There's dozens of them. But yeah, when I was growing up, when I was like in college and like deciding to read the great books or whatever, I tried to read the earlier translations of the stories and didn't like them that much. I did read Magic Mountain. A bunch of the novels have been retranslated since the 1930s by a man named John E. Woods, and those translations are good. So I read Buddenbrooks in that translation. I read Magic Mountain. Um, the Felix Krull novel had been translated in the 60s by a man named Denver Lindley, and that translation was great. Unlike for the Disorder and Early Sorrow story, which I ended up retitling, the I, I was like, do I need to do another Death in Venice? It's been done very well by Michael Henry Heim and all this kind of stuff. I did translate part of Felix Krull that Mon had published as a story, and I thought, do I have to do it again because the Denver Lindley was great. But when I went back and looked, the Heim translation of Death in Venice is 20 years old now. The Lindley translation is 60 years old now. I felt like there were ways that I could make it fresher, make it more accessible, make it more contemporary without, of course, changing the spirit of the Mon, the same way you heard about the beginning of a shining. It's not about rewriting it or dumbing it down or changing it. It's about presenting it in the most forceful and effective English language of today that I could. So I ended up feeling, yes, okay, my death in Venice is worth doing, even though Michael Henry Hine did it very well. And my Felix Sprawl is worth doing, even though the Lindsay translation is good and stuff like that. And then especially, of course, that first story um, where the earlier translation I felt really was inadequate. It was, it was worth doing. If you're asking, did I go sentence by sentence reading the earlier versions as I was translating? No, that would be very distracting. And, um, also, the risk of retranslating is you overcompensate. If an earlier translation did something really good that you like, it turns into kind of a dilemma. Do I do the same thing because it really is good? Or do I prove that I'm not a copycat and that I am like my own person and come up with something else, even if it's not as good. That's a kind of painful situation, and it doesn't help make for a better book. So even though I had read the earlier translations before, I didn't go study them as I'm sitting down to write. When I ran into problems in the revising stages, 
I would sometimes look back and see how someone else had done it. And then I'd have to be like, okay, now that I know that, how can I forget it and put it in my own style without overcompensating or copying? But that's the difference between translating and retranslating. I have to say, I got a email from someone who, or no, it wasn't an email. It was, I read interview with a writer and I think she had edited a book of 18 Jewish short stories translated from 18 different languages and people, Jewish people from 18 different countries and stuff like that. It's a great anthology. And they asked her at the end of the interview, oh, what are you reading? What's on your nightstand? And she said, oh, I'm reading New Selected Stories by Thomas Mann. Chaotic World and Childhood Story is so great. I've been reading Mann my whole life, but I feel like I'm getting to know him for the first time. And I was like, oh, that's great. That's That was the goal, right? That even though he's not a debut writer, there would be be no point in just adding another pebble to the pile unless I could make it new to readers in some way. And so it was very nice to to read that in that kind of unrelated interview. Before uh, we end this conversation, could you please read a couple of paragraphs uh, in English from one of the stories? I will read it from this first story. Disorder and Early Sorrow in my version, is called Chaotic World and Childhood Sorrow. That's interesting, changing the title of the story. Yeah, so the problem with disorder and early sorrow is that it's very tepid. It's very polite and minimal. To me, disorder means, oh, I have to dust the vase. Oh, I have to move the candlestick an inch to the side. That's disorder, like slight messiness. And early sorrow also is weak. What does that mean? The German word for early is sometimes used to mean young, like early in life. In English, we use it sometimes, early buds on the trees or whatever means young. It doesn't mean early in the day, but it just doesn't work as well in English. Early sorrows, what is that? And at the same time, you can't say, so what those mean, the disorder is that the story takes place during the hyperinflation in Weimar, Germany, after World War I, when society is really falling apart. So disorder just seemed way too soft and bland. The early sorrow is that it's this family and they're two older children and two younger children. And the daughter, the beloved young daughter who's four years old, has this kind of heartbreaking experience. It's devastating for her and for the reader. And early sorrow just didn't seem like he's not calling the story young heartbreak. You can't give it away in the title. But at the same time, disorder and early sorrow just seemed too bland. So I spent a really long time trying to figure out how to convey all these things. Um, The word for sorrow in German is a stronger word that also means suffering. So if you know the famous Goethe novel, 
the sorrows of young Werther or the sufferings of young Werther. It's like that. It's closer to tragedy than like being in a bad mood. Although calling it tragedy would be too much also. So I went back and forth for a long time. I really worked on this one and I landed for a while on disarray and early suffering because suffering was stronger. Disarray had a sense of things that should be organized in a certain way have been really shattered and messed up. So disarray and early suffering is closer to the meanings, but it just doesn't sound very good. There are all those syllables and the S's and F's, and it just was not a good title. I really went back to the drawing board. And the thing is that in German, all of the real energy and vitality of the language is in the nouns. And in English, it's in the verbs and the adjectives. This noun, unordnung, which is the opposite of ordnung, which is, means disor- lack of order, was very powerful in German because order is this powerful concept. And as a noun, unorder is very weighty. So it's like chaos. But in English, chaos just sounds like slang. Oh, dude, chaos chaotic worlds you put the energy into the adjective and make get chaotic world and the thing is in english chaotic world is more chaotic than chaos if you just say chaos it's like whatever but a chaotic world conveys it more powerfully there's no logic why chaotic world would be more chaotic than chaos but that's how english works And same with the second half, instead of the trying to solve the sorrow versus suffering thing, make the adjective more vivid and concrete. And then you can use sorrow, the word that sounds better, and still have it work. So that's why it's chaotic world and childhood sorrow, not early or young or premature or abstract word, but make it concrete, chaotic world and childhood sorrow. And Luckily, that sounds nice. There are CHs in both halves, even though they sound different, and the Ds, and it worked It worked out. But that's what you need to do when you're translating from German. You need to turn some of those nouns into verbs and adjectives and make the language forceful in English. Anyway, so that's the title. And I'll just read some from the beginning, skipping a little bit so that we can get a little farther to one of the funny passages. There were only vegetables for the main course, baked Savoy cabbage. And then comes a flummery made from one of the pudding powders you can buy now, tasting of almonds and soap. And while Xavier, the young butler in the striped jacket, he's outgrown white wool gloves and yellow sandals, serves dessert, the bigs gently remind their father that they're throwing a party tonight. The Biggs are brown-eyed Ingrid, 18 years old, an attractive girl about to take her abitur exams and likely to pass them too, if only because she's managed to wrap the teachers, and in particular, the headmaster, entirely around her little finger, but with no plans to make any use of her diploma. With her pleasant smile, equally delightful voice, and a pronounced, extremely entertaining talent for mimicry, she aspires to the theater. And Bert, blonde, 17, desperate to quit school and throw himself headlong into life at once as either a dancer or a cabaret reciter. 
or if nothing else, a waiter, as long as it's, quote, in Cairo, to which he has already once tried to run away at five in the morning, an attempt that was quickly thwarted. He looks decidedly like Xavier Kleinsgutel, the servant his age, not because he looks common. Actually, in his features, he's strikingly like his father, Professor Cornelius. But converging from the other direction, one might say, or in any case by virtue of a mutual assimilation of types, with the main role played by extensive similarities in clothes and general attitude. Both Bert and Xavier wear their thick hair long, casually parted in the middle, and as a result, both deploy the same habitual head movement to toss it away from their respective brows. Skipping a little. The bigs call their parents the elders, not behind their backs, but affectionately and right to their faces, even though Cornelius is only 47 and his wife eight years younger still. Honored elder, they say to him, kind-hearted elder to her. The professor's own parents back in his hometown, leading the humbled, bewildered life of the old, are referred to as the ancients. As for the littles, these being Lori and Biter, who eat upstairs with Blue Anna, so-called because of her blue cheeks, they address their father by his first name, following their mother's example. Abel, they say. In its overfamiliarity, it sounds funny beyond words, especially in the sweet tones of five-year-old Eleonora, who looks exactly like the childhood photographs of Mrs. Cornelius, and whom the professor loves more than anything in the world. Dearest elder, Ingrid says pleasantly, placing her big but lovely hand on her father's. He's sitting in accordance with bourgeois and not unnatural tradition at the head of the table, with Ingrid to his left opposite her mother. Benevolent forefather, let me gently remind you, for surely you have repressed the thought, that this very afternoon is when we were planning to have our little festivity, our shindig with herring salad. As far as you're concerned, remain of good cheer and do not despair. It'll all be over by nine. Ah, says Cornelius with a long face. Fine, fine, he says, nodding to show himself in accord with the inevitable. I was only thinking, is this really the day? Yes, indeed, it's Thursday. How time flies. And I'm going to skip ahead a bit more to read one of the to, to read one more bit from near the beginning. The reason they have only vegetables for lunch is because they can't afford anything because of the hyperinflation. And they're planning the party. Mrs. Cornelius, whose physical type Ingrid has inherited, although Ingrid is taller, is demoralized and exhausted from the insane difficulties she constantly faces in running the household. What she needs is to find somewhere to take a rest cure, but the shifting ground beneath their feet and the topsy-turvy chaos of everything make that impossible for the time being. She thinks of and brings up the eggs that simply must be bought today, 6,000 marks a piece, available in limited quantity on this one day a week only from one particular shop 15 minutes away. Immediately after lunch, before doing anything else, the children have to go buy eggs. 
Danny, the neighbor's son, will drop by to go with them, and Xavier, too, in civilian clothing, will accompany the young master and mistress. For the shop sells five eggs maximum per week per household. So the young people will enter the shop one by one at different times under different assumed names to carry off a total of 20 eggs for the Cornelius Villa, a highlight of the week for all involved. Klein's Goodle not accepted, but especially for Ingrid and Bert, extraordinarily inclined as they are to the deception and mystification of their fellow man, and always eager to do such things of their own free will, even when no eggs are at stake. They love sitting on a bus, indirectly acting the part of different people than they really are, speaking in a country dialect they otherwise never use, openly having long, fake, perfectly normal conversations about politics, food prices, and people who don't exist, while the whole bus listens sympathetically and yet with a dark inkling that something's wrong. Then Ingrid and Bert get bolder, more and more shameless, and start telling the most shocking and revolting stories about these people who don't exist. Ingrid, her voice high and wavering and vulgarly chirpy, is perfectly capable of impersonating a shop girl with an illegitimate child, a son with sadistic tendencies, and just recently out in the countryside, this boy tortured a cow so indescribably that no good Christian could stand to watch. Bert can barely keep from exploding with laughter at the way she trills out, Brutalize that cow! But he puts on a show of gruesome interest and launches into a long and horrific, but at the same time depraved and stupid discussion with the poor shop girl about this particular kind of pathological cruelty until an old gentleman sitting across from them, his ticket folded and tucked between index finger and a signet ring, has had enough and publicly protests against young people going into such detail on these themata. He uses the Greek plural themata. At which Ingrid pretends to dissolve into tears and Bert, fists clenched, teeth gnashing, whole body a quiver, appears able to rein in his deadly fury at the old gentleman only with the utmost effort, and surely not for long, to the point where the old gentleman who'd had only the best intentions, makes a hasty getaway at the next stop. Though this is a funny story, for some reason I liked it, Death in Venice more. I think Death in Venice too gains by being made less pompous and more um, direct in some ways. And it's a pandemic story. It's absolutely about how this infectious disease comes and all the business owners want to stay open and keep making money and the government wants to lie about what's going on and the fire the Minister of Health who's too honest. And that was a very interesting side, of course, of Death in Venice for today, but it absolutely was realistic. There really was a cholera epidemic in Venice and Mon was there in May of 1911. All that stuff really happened. So there are a couple things. The main character is named Gustav Aschenbach, and Gustav Mahler, the musician, had actually died 
So Mon did take a trip to Venice and went to this Adriatic island first and stayed there for a while and then went to Venice. And while he was on the Adriatic island, Mahler, in fact, died and an obituary was in the newspaper. And Mon cut out the picture of Mahler from the newspaper and used that as the physical description of what Aschenbach looks like. He gave the same first name to his character, Gustav, and stuff like that. But Mann, with his wife and his brother, Heinrich Mann, who's also a famous writer, did go to Venice. They stayed in the same hotel. There really was a kid there that Mann developed this kind of crush slash obsession with. And even details down to Bach finds out what's really going on when he goes to an English travel agent, a Thomas Cook, and the travel agent tries to give him the party line, and Aschenbach just looks at him and sadly shakes his head, and the upstanding Englishman's, okay, I'll tell you the real story, and tells him the real story. That happened to Thomas Mann also, except Mann and family left Venice the next day, whereas Aschenbach, of course, stays because he's obsessed with this boy. So Aschenbach really is Mon, except for when he isn't. So Aschenbach is over 50, and Mon was in fact 36 at the time. One of the most fascinating parts of the story is we get a description of the major works that Aschenbach has written. And all of them are projects that Thomas Mann had and had failed to write. So Mann gives Aschenbach the ability to have completed all the things that Mann couldn't do. But then, of course, he's doomed. Aschenbach is. Psychologically, it's very interesting. Aschenbach is really this kind of alternate version of Mann. Aschenbach goes to Venice by himself, not with his wife and brother. Aschenbach stays until he dies. I don't think that's a spoiler since it's in the title. And so on the one hand, everything is exactly realistic, except for what isn't and gets turned into art. I guess uh, Death in Venice, uh, there is a film too. Yeah, the film is from, I believe, the 70s. It's a classic. And I don't like it that much. It's a bit too over the top. But it also interest. They went and they found the boy, the actual Polish kid that Mon had a crush on in real life in Venice, who was still alive. And so they, there's actually a book about him, the real Tadzio, who's the character's name in, in Death in Venice. He exists. He was still alive. They interviewed him. He said, yeah, my family like absolutely looked exactly like that. I remember this old guy who kept staring at me. I was a beautiful boy, and there were lots of grown-ups who would kiss me or pet me or stare at me or whatever. He didn't, I think, know that he had this world-famous story about him until he was found decades later. And he read the story and said, yeah, he described everything exactly correct. That's how it was. Although, again, there too, the real boy was 10, and in the story, the boy is 14, just like... Mon and Aschenbach's ages get changed. Mon's wife said at the beginning of the story in Munich, Aschenbach kind of sees this person at a funeral, at a chapel. 
that sort of inspires him to travel. She said that literally happened in Munich. She said everything's totally true, except that Mon didn't follow the boy around Venice. That wasn't true. But in terms of the hotel and all that kind of stuff, everything's true except for what isn't. Thank you. Thank you for such a lovely, wonderful uh, conversation. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much.